God's Word together now. Isaiah 42, verses 1-9 through 9 is our Old Testament text. One of the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verses 1-9. through 9. This is the unerring and infallible Word of God. Let's give it our full attention now. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Wonderful words about the servant, the Messiah, who's going to come. And that's the one now that we turn and see here in our New Testament text. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Our sermon text here, Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come now with your grace and favor and convince us and comfort us, humble us, direct us. We pray that you would chill our affections to the world and warm them toward our Lord Jesus. Come and revive us and restore us and glorify our God and Savior. We pray that you would cause the graces that you've planted in our souls to bear fruit in the way of love and desire, faith and hope in the person and glory of our beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Loved ones, we're here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the first part of this chapter, which was the opening act for Christ. It was, uh, John is there, in the, uh, John the Baptist is there in the wilderness. He's preaching, and he is there as the forerunner to get people's ears ready to hear. He's, he's, he's there preaching to, to get people ready to receive welcome and trust in Christ. And uh, this, this, is, uh, this is causing a tremendous stir. The, 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 the Gospel of Matthew tells us that all Jerusalem is coming out to John to see him and hear him. And, and all Judea, the whole region around there, flock, uh, crowds, huge crowds are flocking to him. Um, it had been 400 years since a prophet like this came to Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, and speaking out with such authority and power about the coming of the kingdom. And so the people are, are, uh, are, are flocking to hear John's preaching, and they're excited, and they're full of anticipation. The kingdom is coming. The king himself, God himself, is coming to rule, to defeat our enemies, to save us, to fulfill all those wonderful promises of the Old Testament. I mean, they've been, the people have been waiting for the Messiah since Adam. Generation after generation waiting for the Christ to come. And now John is saying, he's here. Finally here. The Christ has come. The King has come. The one mightier than I has come. The one, John says, I'm not worthy to touch his sandals. The one who's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. The one who's going to bring about the kingdom. The judgment and the salvation of God. He is here. It's a glorious message. It ran through Israel like an electric shock. People were stunned and amazed and, and drawn to John's preaching here about the kingdom of heaven. But I think there's also a note of desperation in the wake of John's preaching. If the king is coming, we're in trouble. Right? The king is coming, bringing judgment. It's the 11th hour. We're sinners. And we look at the history of Israel, right? It's a mess, right? It's, it's uh, yes, some faithfulness, much of God's faithfulness, some faithfulness in the people, but so much of a history of their sin and their failure leading down, down, down into exile. And they've never really recovered from that. All right, the king is coming. What do you want when the king comes? You want to be ready. You want to look your best. You want to have it together. And they're nowhere near that point. And they're, they're repenting. John is telling them to repent. And that's their best hope. But right, it almost perhaps feels like too little too late. I mean, what earthly judge ever said, yes, if you feel sorry and you promise to change, you'll be all right. I'll let you go. Right? What's our hope if the king and the judge of all the earth of perfect justice, is, if he's coming, and I'm, and I'm yes, I'm, I'm repenting, but, but what is this king going to do with me? I think that's some of the atmosphere in the air after John's preaching. Right? The king is coming, and I'm seeking repentance by the grace of God, but what is this king going to think of me? What's he going to do with me, do to me? What's he going to say to me? And then we turn in verses 13 to 17 to see this king, to see how he comes. And what we see here is just astounding, breathtaking. It's wonderful what we see here. We see three aspects of our King, of, 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 of the Christ here 
in his words, in his actions, in God's words to him in verses 13 to 17, three aspects of who this Christ is. And they speak volumes of comfort to those who are looking to him and trusting in him. First thing we see in verses 13 to 15, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant. Verses 13 to 15, our first heading is Jesus, the suffering servant. How does this king appear? Right, how would you expect a king to arrive to claim his throne? Right, flanked by a, by a great army, uh, showing up in pomp and circumstance, showing up with great power. Maybe, maybe Christ, you'd expect him to ride up to the gates of Herod's palace and say, I'm the king here. Herod, you're done. Right, but, but what does our king do when he comes? He humbles himself. Look with me at verse, uh, verse 13. It says that Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan where John was with the express purpose of being baptized by John. Verse 13 says, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. This is no easy trip for Jesus. This is a 70-mile trip from his hometown, Nazareth, to the area where John is baptizing in the region around the Jordan. It's not like Jesus is just kind of passing by. He sees, oh, look, John's baptizing a bunch of people. I'll, I'll go get baptized too, or I'll, I'll go ch- just check this out. No, this is a determined purpose of Christ's here. This is, he understands this is what God has called him to do. God, this is what God has commanded him to do. So he makes the trip, and he goes with the express purpose of being baptized by John. John sees him, and he's surprised. He's, he's astounded to see him there. Maybe he's baptizing, you know, here, here comes a tax collector. He baptizes him as the tax collector confesses his sins. And he, then he baptizes this one who's confessing to, to dishonoring his parents. And, and then he looks up, and there's Jesus in line to be baptized. And John tries to prevent Jesus from doing this. John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me? He's saying, Jesus, you don't belong here. This is a baptism for sinners. This is a baptism for, for, for those who know they are sinners and know they need to be cleansed. I'm not worthy, Jesus, to carry your sandals. How am I worthy to baptize you? D.A. Carson comments here that uh, John had difficulty baptizing the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. Now he has trouble baptizing Jesus. Because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. What's going on with John's baptism? What is it, what is it for? It's, it's a symbol of sins being cleansed. It's a sign of your repentance. It's similar to baptism today, right? After Christ uh, accomplishes his work, ascends to heaven, pours out the Spirit, he gives his church a sacrament of baptism, which is similar to John's baptism. John's baptism here is about repentance and forgiveness, and our Christian baptism is similar to that. So there's some difference in that the Holy Spirit has been poured out now. So now it is a baptism of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant after Christ's ascension. But, but John's baptism here is, is a sign of the forgiveness of sins. It's a sign, right? The symbolism of it is pretty clear. You get washed with water, and as you're getting washed with water, it's showing you that God is cleansing you of your sins, washing your sins away. So to get in line for John's baptism was to say to everyone around you, I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need God to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me 
for my sins. So John's looking at Jesus and he's saying, this doesn't add up. Now John doesn't completely understand yet all that Christ is. We read about this over in John's Gospel, chapter 133. He, he, he says there that it wasn't until he saw the Spirit come down that he fully knew everything that, that Christ was. But, but, but here he does know this. He knows Jesus is not a sinner and that he is not uh, he does not need to be baptized. He really shouldn't be baptized. It's not fitting for him to be baptized. How can a sinner baptize and cleanse one who is sinless? So John protests. Jesus responds in verse 15. He says, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all Righteousness. So Jesus acknowledges John's point. Yes, he, he's saying, yes, I see that there's some incongruity here. Something doesn't seem quite right here, but permit it to be so now because it's fitting, it's right now for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? What, what do Jesus' words mean here? They seem a little bit cryptic. What, what, in what way is his being baptized by John a fulfillment of righteousness? To help, help us understand this better, we need to see some of the Old Testament context and background which is behind this. At the end of this passage, the section that we're looking at here in, in Matthew, in verse 17, as God speaks to Jesus, he alludes to an Old Testament text. A key Old Testament text. We read it earlier. Isaiah 42, verse 1. So in Matthew 3, 17, God says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Over in Isaiah 42, verse 1, we read this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. You see how similar those are. God saying in verse 17 of Matthew 3, This is my son. I love him. I delight in him. I'm well pleased with him. Isaiah 42.1 This is my servant. I delight in him. I'm well pleased with him. So there's a connection here. Do you see? Between what Jesus is doing in Matthew 3 and this idea of a servant back in Isaiah 42. And if we continue looking at this theme of the servant back in Isaiah Right, not only at 42, but also chapter 53. We see some more things about this servant that really uh, open up for us what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 3. Right, in, Matthew, uh, in Isaiah 53, Jesus is identified as what kind of servant? A suffering servant. We read a little bit of this text earlier in our assurance of pardon. Right, in, in Isaiah 53, 11, we read, first of all, that this servant will make his people righteous. This servant is going to be righteous, and he's going to make his people to be counted righteous. Isaiah 53, 11, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The righteous servant will make others righteous by his righteousness. The servant of the Lord is going to be the one who makes others to be counted righteous, not because they're righteous in themselves, but because he himself is righteous. It's counted to them. So as Jesus comes here, he's, he's taking on this role. He's bowing to the role of servant, of suffering servant. And he's saying, my job is to submit to God in everything. He commands me to take on this role of servant, and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do that so that I fulfill all righteousness. 
for the sake of my people. So that I live a perfectly righteous, obedient life to God so that my people can be counted righteous because of me. There's a second aspect of what the servant does in Isaiah 53. You read about this in verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. What's the servant do? He's righteous, but who's he numbered with? He's numbered with the sinners. He's counted as a sinner, even though he's not a sinner. What's Jesus doing here in Matthew 3, loved ones, as he's going to receive the baptism of John? Saying, count me with the sinners. Number me with the transgressors. He's being obedient to his father. His father has called him to this, and he's bowing himself to it. He's bending his neck to the yoke of servant. He's fulfilling all righteousness through his obedience, and he's getting in line with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the liars and those who dishonor their parents. He's saying, number me with them. What Jesus is doing here, so remarkable. This, this, this goes against every instinct that we have, right? We see a line of sinners, and we don't want to get in that line. We do not want to be counted with the transgressors. I think it was in fourth grade, and a playground fight broke out during recess. And uh, it was boys versus girls. Apparently, I was involved. <laughs> the whole class had to sit out recess and got a, quite a lecture from our teacher. And um, I remember thinking very distinctly, I am not guilty. I was not involved. I did not instigate anything here. And uh, I don't remember the details. Uh, but, but I remember that feeling. I am not guilty. I do not belong with the guilty ones. There I was. Right? This is, that's our instinct. right? Not to, not to number ourselves with the transgressors, even though we are. What does Jesus do? Perfectly righteous and innocent. And he goes and he says, I'm going to be identified with sinners. He's coming to bear our sins. He, he is coming to, he's coming to take on himself our sin, give us his righteousness. And that's what he's doing in the baptism, right? One commentator puts it like this. He says, baptism is a symbol of the cleansing of our sins. As water is poured over our heads, we're made clean in the sight of God. When Jesus went down into the Jordan River, the opposite happened. He began to take on our sin, our guilt, all the scum of all the baptized. This is how the king comes. All right, this is how the king that we've been waiting for since Adam, this is how the Messiah comes. This is how he starts his rule. We'd expect him to get up there with John and say, John, I'm here now. I'll take it from here. And start preaching repentance and saying, I'm the king. Now you need to repent and obey. And he will do that in chapter 4. But first, in chapter 3, the first thing he does numbers himself for the transgressors. He goes, he says, Lord, count their sin as mine. I'm going to bear the sins of my people in obedience to my Father. It's not a comfort that you have a king like that, loved ones. The next thing we see here in the text is what God does in response to his son's incredible obedience and submission. See how God responds to Christ here and bears witness to Christ here. And we see more here, more of the glories of our Savior as we look at this. So let's look now at verse 16. Verse 16. We see here, Jesus is the Spirit-filled Savior. 
So he said God is responding here to his son, right? He sees Jesus' obedience. He sees his willingness to suffer for the sake of his people. This is what the Father has sent the Son to do, and it delights him that the Son is doing this. So the first thing he does is he pours out the Spirit on him. The Spirit of God comes down. The heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God descends on Christ, rests on him like a dove. Now again, we look at this. And maybe we scratch our heads. What exactly is going on here? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit came down on Christ? What what is the significance of that at the start of his ministry? And why a dove? What's going on here? And again, if we go back to the Old Testament, we find some really helpful background to unpack the significance of this here. Matthew, of course, deeply steeped in the Old Testament. And as he's writing this, he's, he's bringing out the riches of what God has said there and showing its fulfillment in Christ. So let's, let's look back at a few things in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit to unpack the significance of the Spirit coming on Jesus at this point. First thing we see in the Old Testament uh, uh, associated with the Spirit is the work of creation. Genesis 1, God creates the world, and there is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The Spirit is portrayed as the agent of creation, as the power of God accomplishing the Word of God in creation. Second thing we see that I want us to see here, uh, the Spirit is also associated with salvation in the Old Testament. Right? Israel's got a hero that God raises up, and what's he do? He puts the Spirit on him to do the work of saving the people. Think of Samson. Or, 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 or David, or, or others, right? God equips them with the Holy Spirit for the task he's given them of saving his people. That's the second thing we see associated with the Spirit in the Old Testament. A, a third thing we see the Spirit associated with in the Old Testament is the age to come. The, the Messianic age, we see as the prophets look forward to when the Christ comes and when the kingdom comes, they see that's the age of the Spirit when God will pour out His Spirit above and beyond anything we've ever seen, right? Joel chapter 2, 28, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. So if we take those three things, we bring them over to this passage here, we look at what's happening with Christ as the Spirit comes down on Him. First thing we see, the new creation is beginning, Right? As the Spirit comes down on Jesus, hovering over him like a dove and coming to rest on him, it brings to mind that imagery in Genesis 1 where the Spirit is hovering like a bird almost in the imagery there over the creation, the first creation. So the same Spirit who brought about by almighty power the first creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, is beginning the new creation with no less power here in Christ. We also see, second, that as the Spirit in the Old Testament equipped these great heroes to save the people of God, He's coming to rest on and remain on Christ to equip Him. Jesus is portrayed in the New Testament as the Spirit-filled man par excellence. Filled with the Spirit to the utmost, beyond all others. Uh, He is the one who is by this Spirit, enabled to do the work God gave him to do. This is how Jesus sees his, uh, this is how Jesus sees that he is enabled to do his work. We read this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Jesus depends on the power of the Spirit to do his work as Messiah, as Christ. 
And this gives us this wonderful guarantee, doesn't it, that if he is equipped beyond measure with the Holy Spirit, surely he cannot fail in his task. Then the third thing, the Spirit announces the age of the Messiah. The Spirit announces the, the end of the ages. The kingdom is here. So God, as he pours out his Spirit on Christ, is saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. The Christ is here. The new creation has begun. The Savior is here. What should all this do for us? What was its intention there, right? It's, I think God is doing it to encourage His Son, Jesus, for the suffering and obedience that He's undertaking. And I think He's also doing it to show John and to show everyone else there who might have seen that this indeed is the Messiah, the Christ. Right? Uh, over in John chapter 1, we read that John sees this, and that's when it clicks. When he sees the Spirit come down, this is when it clicks to him that this is the Christ that was promised. John 1, 33-34 says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Loved ones, this is what convinced John, and this is also what should bear witness to us. This is the one that God has said, this is the Christ, I've put my spirit on him, Uh, the kingdom has come. The suffering servant is the spirit-filled Savior who has come to bring the kingdom. That's the second thing we see here in these verses. Now finally, let's turn to our our last heading here in verse 17. Jesus is the beloved Son. Jesus is the beloved Son. Verse 17. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God is continuing to respond here to His Son's faithfulness and obedience and humility. And he is, he is showing his delight. He poured out the Spirit on him, placed the Spirit on him to equip him for his task. And now he is saying explicitly with his very words, this is my son. I love him. I'm well pleased with him. Uh, God, God is looking at him and he, he, he's like a father bursting with pride in a son who is doing everything that pleases him. They're wonderful words here. Let's, let's unpack what, what we see here. As God says, this is my son whom I love, what does he mean for us to understand by that? A few things for us to see. For one, I think he's showing us that this son that he's pointing to is divine. Right? He, he, this isn't the main thing here, but I think it's something that is being communicated to us, that, that as Jesus is called the son of God, God is saying, he bears my image, and he is equal with me. We see as, as Jesus goes out you know, in the Gospels and as he, as he tells people, I'm the Son of God, people say, you're blaspheming. You're making yourself equal with God. And that's exactly right. To be the Son of God, in this sense, is to be equal with God, the second person of the Trinity. And so as God tells us and uh, shows us here, this is my son, the co-equal with me, the eternal person, second person of the Godhead. And as we see this here, we're seeing God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all together 
resolving to save us. J.C. Ryle comments here, it was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the Gospel seemed to say, let us save man. The whole triune God is here to save us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's one thing, or one aspect of Jesus' identity as Son. There's another piece of the picture, uh, and that is that Jesus is the royal Son. Right? Where, who do we see called a Son in the Old Testament? Well, especially David, the King of Israel. He's, he's called a Son. God's words here in uh, verse 17 allude to Psalm 2, verse 1, where God says of Israel's King, You are my Son even as he says of Jesus here. And so this, song, uh, this, this verse here, verse 17, God is telling his people, this is the king. But I don't think either of those two things is really the, the heart of what is being communicated here. What I think is, is that as Jesus is called the son here, God is telling him, most significantly in our context in this passage, he is my national son. What I mean by that is that Jesus is my Israel. He is Israel. The embodiment of everything Israel should have been. The representative of Israel. True Israel. Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we see God refer to Israel as my son. We see him refer to uh, them this way several times. And we see already in Matthew, in in Matthew chapter 2, which we looked at a number of weeks ago, um, as Jesus is driven uh, away as an infant uh, with his parents to, uh, to Egypt, because of Herod's threat to kill, the, uh, to kill the, the, the newborns. And then as he comes back, Matthew says that's ful- a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, out of Egypt I called my son. So that text in Hosea is about Israel, the nation being called out of Egypt, and Matthew's saying that applies to Jesus because he's true Israel, the embodiment of everything Israel should have been, the son of God. That's what is being shown to us here. And so, loved ones, as we see Jesus called true Israel, the Son of God here, we see him going down into the Jordan River to being, he's going to be baptized by John, counted a sinner, numbered with sinful Israel, bearing their transgressions. He's doing it so that he can represent them before God as true Israel. Israel as, as, as she should have been. Right? He's there, and, and in his perfect obedience, he's saying, I am Israel. And as God looks at him, he says, yes. This is Israel. This is the Israel I wanted. This is the Israel whom I love. The Israel with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus does this. He does this so that all those who are in Christ can be part of that true Israel. Not cut off, cast off, but welcomed by God. He does this not just for the Old Testament saints. He does this not just for the people living then. He does this for you and for me. As as we trust in Him, He brings us into this new spiritual Israel that He is the head of, and He represents us before God as the perfectly righteous one. And in Christ, we stand before God as a perfect son, perfectly obedient, no record of wrong. Do you want to hear the Father say to you, you are my son and I love you and I am well pleased 
with you. We're wired, I think, to want to hear that. I mean, we see this in our relationship with our earthly fathers, a picture of this. Right? The desire to have dad be proud of me and dad pleased with me. And so much more so, right? This, that, that urge we have, that longing we have, is pointing us to the far greater longing that we have to have God our Father say that of us. We know this is what we were made for, to have a relationship with Him and have His pleasure on us. Right? His, his delight in us. But we've sinned. We've, we've broken His law. We've rebelled against Him. We know no sinners allowed in His presence. We, 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 are, we deserve His wrath. We're not sons worth being proud of. We're sons who've ashamed Him. Look at how I've treated Him. Look at all that I've done against Him. The wonderful news of the Gospel here in Matthew 3 is that in Christ, God looks at you and He says, you're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm not counting uh, your sins against you. Jesus stood in your place. He got in line, the line for the sinners, and He stood in your place. He took on your sins. He was numbered in your stead. And there's going to come a point in His life where He's going to stand before His Father. He's going to be put on the cross before His Father. And heaven's going to be shut and silent. Just the wrath of God, nothing else for this perfectly obedient Son. No voice saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That'll come at the resurrection. But there as Jesus bears our sins, He's taking on the wrath of God, bearing it, enduring it for us, so that you and I will never have a moment like that. So that in Christ, God says to us, already says to us, even now, you're my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is how the king starts his reign. This is how the king shows up to Israel. This is how God incarnate comes to his people. Suffering servant. Spirit-filled savior. Beloved son. Come to save us, loved ones. Won't you trust in him? Won't you rest in him and worship him and give your heart to him and love him? Let's pray together. We thank You, O God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that we would now give our hearts to Him promptly and sincerely. And we would rest in Him and trust in Him and not in ourselves. We ask this for His dear sake. Amen.